0: Good morning, Church of the Cross. Uh, Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful. Lord, we're grateful that your word is scattered so freely, that, Lord, as you are the one who scatters the seed of your gospel throughout the world, that, Lord, you do so with reckless abandon. And, Lord, we ask that the seeds that you have sown into our community, into our hearts through the reading of Scripture this morning, can bear fruit in our lives. Lord, we ask that these words uh, be transformative, that, Lord, even um, wherever we are and whatever circumstance we find ourselves, that, Lord, you would meet us and that your resurrection life would be poured into us. And we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I have to confess, this is the first time I've ever preached into a video screen. So uh, this, is, this is a first for me, for sure. Um, and it's certainly the first time I've preached to a new church on a video screen. So I've put it on gallery view so that I can see as many of you as possible to make this as, as least weird as it can be. Now, when I started Divinity School, Emily and I moved into a little townhouse in Durham, North Carolina. And I say little, but it felt enormous after living in this tiny little apartment in a fourth-story walk-up in Harlem when we were living in New York City the year before. And when we moved to Durham, I don't know if it was the extra space or this new scenery, but we just had lots of dreams, big dreams. And the biggest of those dreams when we first moved to Durham was to foster a community a community that was one of hospitality and prayer to create a residential spiritual component to the academic course of study that I was going to be embarking on as I got my MDiv. So our pastor at the time, some guy that I was just getting to know named Steve Breedlove um, was really excited about this idea. Of course, Steve is now our Bishop. And uh, we had started to dream about this together. And so in January of 2012, we bought a house and we moved in and started Canterbury House in North Durham. And by summer, we had eight of us, single and married from various places all around the country, living in a house together, gathering for morning prayer and evening prayer, meals were cooked and shared. It was going to be awesome. We were pumped. Well, it turns out it was awesome, just not in the way that we might have expected. Now, I know a number of you currently live in Christian community, or you may have lived in Christian community before, and they are a source of real blessing. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. But also, and very importantly, they are extremely hard work. They are a ton of work. They're a ton of work because living in community makes your own sinfulness, your flaws, your idiosyncrasies, as well as your joys and uh, excitement, all of it becomes more potent. Things that might have been diffused with space are concentrated when you're all on top of each other. Now, I think of it like thickening a sauce, and you guys are going to have to get used to cooking analogies, I'm sorry. Um, When you pour the liquids into a pan and you start to heat them up, nothing really tastes all that strong, right? You start thickening a sauce and nothing's too sweet or too salty or too unctuous, but when the liquid starts to reduce all of those flavors, become more intense, more and more concentrated. Living in community is the same way. Uh, All those relational dynamics and flaws and especially wounds and sin become things that you can't run from. They're right in front of you. And I think the experience of quarantine these last four weeks has reminded me of living in Christian community all of us are living condensed versions of our lives if you live by yourself you may feel that your isolation has thickened and congealed around you has become more pronounced if you live with young children or roommates or a spouse there is no place to escape you're all pressed together and this experience in all its various forms thus brings to the surface realities of our own brokenness of our own sin And we just, you can't run from them, can you? You're stuck. Now, one of the great joys of reading scripture over and over again is that the Spirit finds you wherever you are and and takes well-worn texts and shows you new things through them. Well, as I'm reading this text, the first words of our gospel reading today have new meaning. The disciples were locked in a room together for fear of the Jews. And that takes on new significance when you're reading them in quarantine. They are, in a sense, quarantined together. Not sure what the future is gonna hold. The world outside seems scary and they feel vulnerable. They wonder who they can trust, what they can trust. And I imagine in this setting, all of their old struggles and and, uh, fears are taking on new vigor and intensity. And in an almost playful way, of course, Jesus shows up through a locked door, having passed through the walls. And the disciples are astonished. They're afraid at first, and then they're overjoyed, empowered by the Holy Spirit, the breath that gives them new life. But perhaps Thomas was the one who was assigned for the grocery run. Maybe he was the one who was out to go buy bread. Maybe he was the one supposed to go get water, or maybe he was so sick of listening to Peter talk all the time, he just had to take a walk. We don't know, because Scripture doesn't tell us, but we do know that Thomas wasn't there. Now, when Thomas comes back, he finds that everyone else is glowing with excitement, right? And this excitement that the others have seen Jesus seems to inflare something within him. Perhaps old wounds of doubt or perhaps a feeling like he was never on the inner circle with Jesus, that he was left out of Peter, James, and John. Perhaps something was amplified within him because of the stress that he's been under. And Thomas says, unless I see the mark of the hands in his knees, Uh, mark of the nails in his hands, and I put my fingers in his side, I will not believe. Now, for most of my life, I heard Thomas saying that in a tone of defiance, a tone of condescension and cynicism, and you could read it like that. But I think that mostly says something about me growing up a kid in New England, made fun of because I was a Christian. I constantly heard this kind of doubt as something that was weaponized rather than an admission of something else. And I have come to read this text totally differently. When Thomas says that he does, when he says this, he does so not out of defiance, but out of despair, out of a broken heart, out of a heart that is so broken and fragile and weak that it cannot hope for something so good as Jesus being alive after experiencing so much evil on the road to this redemption. He's wounded. He's afraid. He's withdrawn. They are locked in a room for fear of the Jews. But, and this is is crucial, Thomas doesn't go anywhere. He remains the only one who has not seen the resurrected Jesus. The only one who still carries this despair among his friends. But he doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't run. And it's because he remains, even when he is the only one who is carrying that wound, that he is still there when Jesus returns a week later. Now, when we hear the words today read, belief and doubt in English, we might get an idea that Thomas just can't wrap his head around the idea that Jesus is risen. It's a hard thing to believe in. And in common usage, we talk about belief mostly as mental assent, as a position we hold in our mind. And thus, belief in God or in the resurrection of Jesus can sometimes be construed the same way that one talks about belief in Bigfoot. It's something that some people believe, I guess, but it really doesn't make much of a difference either way in the way we live our lives. Where the word translated belief here is pistis. In many other places in the New Testament, it's translated faith or faithfulness. The word doubt simply apistis, not pistis, if you will. And pistis means something so much more than just mental assent to something, though it might include that. Trust is a much better way to translate the word here, I think. In this case, Thomas is refusing to trust in the resurrected Jesus. And let's cut the guy some slack. I mean, this is a really hard thing to believe, right? It's a really hard thing to let seep into your soul without Jesus having breathed the Holy Spirit on you. Doubt is not just something that is happening in his head. I picture him standing at the top of the highest um, diving board in a pool. And he's looking down and all of his friends are swimming around in this pool of resurrected joy. But he won't dive in. He's paralyzed and he, he won't turn back either because he knows he has nowhere to go. And so he's just stuck. He's afraid. He's His feet are made of concrete, if you will. And it's in that moment, that moment of paralysis and fear of despair, that Jesus comes. Jesus shows up and brings resurrection life to the broken heart and soul of Thomas. Jesus shows up and draws near to Thomas when when Thomas is completely unable to draw near to him. Jesus shows up to offer him his wounds, the wounds to Thomas, not just as a proof of his identity, but as the source of Thomas's healing. And to define what resurrection life can be for all the rest of us who proclaim his name as Lord. Jesus, Jesus shows up. And Jesus goes to Thomas and he says, Thomas, here, put your finger here in your hand thomas put it put it here thomas don't stand on this ledge forever in fear hold on to me thomas trust in me and thomas thomas is completely transformed he says my lord and my god not just lord not just god lord is not just a title but a relationship to him because he has trusted in Jesus, trusted and hung on. He is able to dive forward, to move into real life. It is by his wounds that we have been healed. And as a result, it is not just a change of thinking. It's a change of everything. And not just a new belief and a new fact like, well, I, I guess it's now true that Jesus is raised from the dead. It's, it's life rather than paralysis life rather than death this moment with thomas teaches us so much as followers of jesus in the easter tide something profound and important about our lives about our world about god's redemption now in romans paul writes that god works together all things toward the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose all Things. And the resurrection is at the very heart of that promise. Sinful humanity crucifies the Son of God. And the cross, the very instrument of humanity's evil inflicted on God, becomes the very heart and soul of our atonement. And when Jesus is raised, he bears the marks of that crucifixion as ornaments of God's victory over evil more than that, they've become now weapons for his goodness in the world, for healing. Now, in the Gospel of John, especially, the body of Jesus is the perfection of the temple. The word made flesh to tabernacle with us. I'm sure you know that line, and, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. The word dwell there is actually tabernacle. And the tabernacle, of course, was, was the first version of the temple and temples and tabernacles. It was this place where a holy, radically holy, powerful God comes to meet a people who are broken and sinful. It is the place where God is mediated to the world and the world mediated to God. And the resurrected body of Jesus is humanity made fully alive. The resurrected body of Jesus is God and humanity finally merged together in the perfection that God has always intended. It provides a way for us back to the divine image we were made in. But Jesus does not simply discard the marks of our sin, He converts them. He does not just brush aside, He makes everything more beautiful through them. For Thomas, His wound of doubt isn't just healed, it's resurrected, and becomes, I believe, the vehicle for his own vigor and evangelism. The story is that Thomas was a missionary in India, and if you go to the Kerala region of India today, it has churches that are thousands of years old, and just about everyone you meet will have the name Thomas somewhere. In my church in Kigali, we had a number of these families from India. And Thomas was always one of their middle names or last name. And all of them do that because they trace their Christian heritage back to this Thomas. This Thomas who learned to say, my Lord and my God. And so this Thomas who was paralyzed by doubt was in the end the one who ventured the farthest and had to trust perhaps most deeply in the person of Jesus. I had a friend who said it's really a shame that we call him doubting Thomas and not confessing Thomas. Because at the end of the story, Thomas is confessing that Jesus is Lord. And it's not just Thomas. You see all throughout the Gospel of John and really throughout Scripture that the people who meet Jesus are resurrected, such that the sources of their shame become the wombs of their joy. The woman at the well is a perfect example in John chapter 4. The woman at the well meets Jesus, and at the end of the story, she's running through the streets proclaiming that Jesus has told her everything she has ever done. Now imagine living in this small village. I don't know if any of you have ever lived in a small town, but everybody knows everybody's business. So everyone knows that she has had five husbands, and the man she's living with is not her husband. And so she's running through the streets proclaiming this thing which must have been a source of incredible pain in her life, but doing so as a source of joy. Because that place of darkness and shame which she was afraid to let go, Jesus has entered into and given her new and abundant streams of living water. And for those of us who are Easter people, who are leaning into the joy of the Resurrection, this Eastertide, who are living in lives that are condensed in quarantine, this, this is hope. Even as our lives thicken around us, as we discover through quarantine new sources of pain and frustration, wounds and sin, we have a Savior who says, give them to me. Give them to me so I can make an end to them, at the cross. But here's the thing, we should expect that as resurrection breath fills our lungs, as it did the disciples, that the Lord is going to hand those things back to us, not as we knew them, not as weights and burdens, but as resurrected callings, places that once were evidence of brokenness and sin in the world and in our lives, Become in the Lord's hands signs of our own redemption, sources of our own joy, and importantly, places appealing for others. Now, that's, that's a terrifying thing. It's a tall order. I mean, when I think about the places of real intense pain in my life, it's difficult for me to always think of how God can make that not just well, but an avenue for God's redemption in my life and in others. And at the same time, I have seen it true over and over and over again, that the things that I have given over to the Lord on the cross, he gives back to me with resurrected life. I am, um, I grew up with an alcoholic parent. And, uh, it's one of those things which marks you deeply for the rest of your life. It still does. Today, even today, um, you know, I have different kinds of decisions I have to make because of this. And it seems like one of those things that would have never been redeemable. And when you're in the middle of it, maybe many of you understand this, it feels unredeemable. And yet, in my own life, I have seen it redeemed as a source of joy, of healing a source of understanding in my pastoral ministry over and over and over again. And if that were something I simply shut away and never let the Lord touch, I would never have known the joy of resurrected life in that place of pain for me. And the same thing is true. The same thing is true for each and every one of us. That when we are confronted with our own sin, that God asks us to give it to him so that he can give it back to us as a calling. The resurrected Lord is calling to each and every one of us today. Come. Come and feel this wound on my side. Come, put your finger in the the mark of the nail in my hand. Come. Feel that I am here and for you. Do not fear. Trust me. Trust me with those places you are most afraid to trust. Trust me with all the things that weigh you down, because I have new and abundant life to give you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is in this time where we are pressed together, or perhaps where our isolation is ever more painful in our lives, that you can draw near to us that Lord, as resurrection life was given to Thomas and it transformed everything, that Lord, you can transform everything in us. Lord, I pray, especially this morning, that you would meet us where we are, that Lord, we would know your presence and know the presence of your body, even as we are disconnected. And Lord, that we would stand on your promise that uh, against your church, the gates of hell will never prevail. Lord, send your Spirit into each of our homes, into each of our living rooms, and bless this time. We pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.